Uh, last week we finished up the book of Isaiah after six months almost, and uh, I, I think it was very much worth our while to go through there because there is a great deal of correction, there is also a great deal of inspiration and hope, especially from chapter 40 on, uh, for us for the future. From 52, 51 and 52, it says, wake up. In 53, it shows a very important focus on Jesus Christ. And then in 54, he shows the return of blessings and says that uh, those who are faithful will need to lengthen their tenth cords and so on. In other words, prepare for more people because God is going to begin gathering just as he did in as he lays the story out in the book of Haggai. So the book of Haggai and Isaiah 54 on are very much in sync with one another. And we saw in some of those chapters that God is going to begin to bless in a way that he has not heretofore. Uh, we're going to have all kinds of blessings. I believe that will include healings. That is mentioned in Isaiah 53, our health. It's mentioned in Isaiah 58, if we will share what we have and uh, fast from a proper standpoint, which we have been endeavoring to do, and indeed had a church fast. Exactly what year this will happen, I do not know. He says he will send the former and the latter rains in the first month. And of course that's been written now for at least 3,000 years, or close to it. And it's been there ever since. <clears throat> and people have read it from the time it was written, ever since. Uh, not quite 3,000 years uh, since it was written. But at some point, that's going to happen in some particular year. Now, whether it's this year or next year or three years from now or whenever remains to be seen, but we know the timing of it. And it appears that God will return blessings in the first month or probably around Passover time. So that is the way Isaiah is laid out from 53 on, that he will begin to show blessings again. We saw the book of Isaiah proceed through end-time events, enemies coming against that God would take care of, and on into then Christ returning in the millennium on the earth by the end of chapter 65 and 66. Let's go that today to the New Testament. And I want to go back to the book of First Peter. Now Peter <coughs> was the one Christ chose to be the primary leader, along with James, of the early New Testament church. Peter, as we were introduced to him, <coughs> had been a fisherman. He was not a scholar. He was not a well-trained man as Paul was in that sense. And he had, <clears throat> I guess in some ways, fisherman ways. He was a hearty, hail, well-met fellow. Uh, at times, perhaps even a bit of a loose cannon. You didn't know exactly how Peter would react. Uh, I think he settled down a little later and became sobered. Uh, by events and things that happened, but his enthusiasm sometimes got him in trouble. Uh, 
zeal and enthusiasm is a great and wonderful thing. We should do whatever our hand finds to do with our might. The only thing we have to learn about that is to learn the wisdom to know what our hand should find to do. Sometimes we do it with our might, but our hand is on the wrong thing. So there's a learning process of wisdom that I think Peter certainly learned. And even though he was a bit rash sometimes in the ways that he approached things, God could see a leadership quality in Peter that once he was converted would be very, very important. Because the natural enthusiasm of the man is a natural leadership characteristic. It just simply has to be channeled and influenced by the Spirit of God. Peter made some serious mistakes, <clears throat> such as denying Christ three times on that one night. Yet on the other hand, he was willing to step out of the boat and try to run to Christ, even though when he looked down, he thought, I can't do this, this doesn't work, and sank. He did it. For how long? I don't know how many steps he took out of the boat, one, two, three, five, ten, twenty, before he realized what he was doing and said, I can't do this. In believing it from the beginning, he could do it. It's when he began to doubt that he had problems. Christ told him, when you're converted, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And I think that that is exactly what Peter did here. I wanted to go to Peter now for several reasons. One, <clears throat> it is a natural extension from the book of Isaiah to Peter because there is a great deal of hope involved in the last 26 chapters of Isaiah. And the book of First and Second Peter, Peter's writings, are judged to be basically a message of hope. There are several different topics uh, addressed, but hope is the overall uh, subject or the message of Peter. Peter went through quite a little. When he was done going through it, <clears throat> he came out with a powerful message of hope. And I think that that's something that is waning in the church. It's something that is lacking in many cases. And it's why, in some cases, people go off a different direction. They simply have lost hope, and they have nothing left to keep them going. Now, God did tell us in Isaiah 55, was it, I think, that he would intervene before the flesh completely failed us and his people gave up on him. Some are already giving up. Others are not. But conditions are tough emotionally, and it's difficult in the church today. We will face trials, troubles, and problems. We're going to face enemies, <clears throat> but there will come a point where God says, I'm going to take care of those for you. So we need to have absolute belief and faith that God will fight our battles for us and hope that things will come through the way he says. He's sworn these things by his own name. He's the one who created heavens and earth. He's the one that created the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the birds, the flowers, the water. He's the one that made all this, whose mind designed it, and then could bring it into focus and into creation. 
He did that. And we have it around us to see what God is capable of doing. He tells us in Romans, we see him by the things he has made. We look at this incredible creation around us, and we're looking at God. Not Mother Earth, Gaia, as they say, but we're looking at the work of God. We're looking at the works of God's mind. We're seeing what he's done. And by his word, these things were done. And he says, by that same word, he is going to deliver us here at the end. We can absolutely believe that. So Peter was told to feed us. And we don't have a great deal of writing from Peter, like we do Paul, or not as much nearly as we have from John. So there's not a whole lot here. Therefore, I think we need to pay very close attention to it because with that command, once Peter was converted, he was supposed to feed us. So what God chose from all the sermons, all the letters, from everything that Peter did in his life is two short little books to put in the Bible. Now the man's probably spoke volumes more than this, he gave sermons for many, many years. He probably wrote many, many letters to people scattered throughout the Middle East, through Europe, no telling where all. But these are the words God preserved for us, something we should pay very, very careful attention to. We didn't get to hear a lot of sermons from Peter. All we get is these two letters. Now, I do not feel that we should allow, allow even one Sabbath to go by <clears throat> taken for granted. For many, many years, we came to church services and worldwide and since because we're supposed to be there. We came because we wanted to be a part of the church. We often endured the sermons rather than appreciated, enjoyed, or got much out of them. We must come here, having prayed, each and every one of us, that God will give us what we need in any particular week. We need to focus on God's holy Sabbath day, pray, study, spend time meditating and thinking of the things of God on his Sabbath day, not just sleep, it's a day of physical rest, yes, but more than that, it's a day of spiritual rest and renewal. And you have a very important part in the Sabbath service. I wanted to say this before we get in this. It's not just for me, or the sermonette men, or whoever might be giving a sermon today, to be sure that you are properly fed. <clears throat> God tells us, each and every one of us, to pray for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And we should pray on the Sabbath particularly for that, that we might receive, I mean, we get up, we shower, shave, get dressed to come to Sabbath services, to fellowship. God commanded us to do it. He says, don't forsake it, do it. But it shouldn't be a burden, and it shouldn't be anything we take for granted or just something we do out of habit. 
It's something we should prepare our minds for ahead of time. We should be praying Sabbath evening, Sabbath morning, that God will provide what we need and that we will be in the proper attitude to receive it so that it can help us grow to be more like God the Father in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Job was a very righteous man. Job did the right things. Job even gave sacrifices for his children whom he thought might have sinned that day. And yet, he didn't realize how much difference there was between himself and God. There is a vast difference between us and God who created all we see around us, including ourselves. And we're to become like him. <clears throat> He's not just like us. He's far above us, far greater in scope, far better in attitude and approach to life. He's given us his word, <clears throat> says, this is how I think. Think like this. Be like this. And if we can come taking anything for granted, then we have somehow lost sight of what Job had lost sight of. We've begun to think, well, we're not so bad, or we're okay, or I don't guess I really need this today. I'll go, and I'll probably hear some nice things. And then we do, and we might appreciate what we heard, but it's so easy to go home and forget it. It's so easy not to apply it in our lives, we say it, usually in the closing prayer, somebody, or often does, help us apply these things in our lives. But it's real easy to get busy and forget to apply them in our lives. It's easy to talk about love in a sermon. It's hard to show it on Wednesday afternoon. But if we realize the vast contrast between our minds and our actions, and the way God is, maybe we couldn't take it for granted. Maybe we would be more eager to make sure we get the message, to make sure we apply it in our lives rather than drifting on, drifting on. <clears throat> we drifted and drifted till we went asleep, didn't we? And God is now waking us up through very severe means. If we take anything for granted, we could be in trouble with God more and more. You know what? I'm tired of division and scattering and dissension and argument. Even after sending out this Passover paper, now I've gotten reams of material, I've literally reams of material from different people, different papers they've sent proving different things or at least allegedly proving different things, and then I have to paw through it and try to answer it. And the confusion is almost complete between the various things that contradict each other that I have received. A ream is 500 pages. I'm sure I've received more than that in papers and various things, some by mail, some by email, or whatever. It gets frustrating. It gets tiresome. 
to have to wade through it all and try to answer people. I mean, it's one thing for you to know what's right. It's another thing to try to answer all the wrong. I'm tired of this situation. I would like us to be unified and close. But if we keep drifting along, that won't happen. Now, I'm not criticizing the people that have sent some of those papers. At least they're thinking. At least they're studying. At least they're trying to figure something out. There are so many who are taking everything for granted still who are just sitting in wherever they are doing nothing. And they're worse off, I think, than those who are studying. They might come up with some wrong conclusions, but at least they have their head in the Bible. I just received a letter yesterday from a lady who wants to be put on our mailing list. Uh, just out of the blue, I hadn't. she had some of my sermons from, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, I suppose, six, seven, eight years ago when I was in CGG. And she had picked up some literature from one of those who claims to be the only end-time work. The only righteous one succeeding Herbert Armstrong type of thing. There are several of those out there. Quite a few, in fact. <clears throat> but she said, I went there, and I thought, well, just maybe God has sent a successor to Herbert Armstrong who has all the answers, and he can run our lives, and he can tell us what to do. And she stayed in that organization for a year and a half, and she says, it was all wrong. It was wrong. It was not right. Just recently, someone called and wanted me to go to a particular website, because this fellow has it all together. Wanted me to listen to a four-and-a-half-hour sermon. Well, I went to the website. This person claims to be God's only end-time apostle. Has a pretty good-sized work. and says, we are the only successors to Herbert Armstrong. And I've went through enough of his articles, and he's still following the Jewish calendar, defending it, and so on and so forth. That's not sounding like an end-time apostle to me. And it was full of pride and spiritual vanity. We're this, we're that, we're something else, we're important. Well, on and on it goes. But the lady said, I've listened to your tapes. She said, I agree with what you're saying. I guess she agrees. None of us are righteous, no, not one. That we are only special if we follow God. That he has not chosen any one group right now. He is going to form a group at some time when he brings a remnant together, but he hasn't done it yet. And anyone who thinks they are that are in trouble. Haggai says he will appoint two leaders and he will bring or stir people to come to them. So far, I only see people stirring people to come to them themselves. And it makes me wonder how much we should reach out in that sense at this point I think what we need to be doing is getting our lives right, getting ourselves ready to be a part of whatever God is going to do, and then maybe he will include us when that comes. And I think the things we're doing are the correct thing, but that doesn't mean we're the only group that God is working through. I believe his people are scattered throughout 
the church of God throughout the organizations, and when he gets ready to draw them together, he's going to do it. And he will do it with his mighty hand, not because some man stands up and says, look at me, I'm the only uh, what's the legitimate successor to Herbert Armstrong. That's baloney. Who told him that? Where did he get that? Did Herbert Armstrong tell him that? No. I want you to know I don't feel like I'm the only successor to Herbert Armstrong. I'm barely hanging to a piece of driftwood and even surviving spiritually, much less being his only successor on earth, as almost each and every one of them claims. So let's get our perspective right. God wants a meek and humble people, not a people filled with spiritual pride and vanity. We were going to go into the book of Peter today. Let's do. <clears throat> There's an awful lot of hope here. But you know, unless you get your perspective right, the hope won't do you any good. What good does it do to claim to be special or an apostle or whatever if you don't know what God says to do? Now you may do a lot, but is what you do worthwhile and what God wanted done? There are a lot of people on this earth who do a lot of things. There are a lot of church organizations that do a lot of things. Are those things what God wants done? We need to be sure we get in this book and find out what God wants done. And I think overall it's fair to say he wants his bride prepared right now. Jesus Christ wants his bride prepared and the Father wants it prepared. He's already called plenty of people to choose from to finish the 144,000 of the bride. And his focus is not to call more people, nor is it to warn the world. That comes with the two witnesses. Our job right now is to get ourselves ready. Let's see that. Let's get into Peter. We'll find that. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the stranger scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, basically areas north of the Euphrates River. The people of God were scattered all over the place. Do we see any familiarity or similarity here now? I mean, whatever boat Peter's rowing at this moment, we're already in it. After the first sentence, all it took. Uh, we're here, right now. We're scattered. Elect. I hope we're a part of the elect. So there's another inclusion of us, not just those people that he specifically wrote that letter to, but this letter was written by Peter to those individuals, and God said, that letter I want included in my word because the people who come later need to read it too, not just those that he wrote it to. So God enlarged this letter and sent it forward to us. Here it is today. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knew that he would call a certain type of person. We could get into predestination here, and did God call every one of us all the way back? 
I really don't overall think so, because even those whom God used in a mighty way said they were chosen from the womb. Now, if certain ones who were the greatest leaders, some of them, in the Bible, were only chosen from the womb, who are we to claim we were chosen before Adam and Eve were even created? It doesn't make sense to me. Perhaps God could do it. But wouldn't he have had to cause certain people to be together through all these 6,000 years to produce you the way you are today? Wouldn't he have almost had to cause fornication and adultery and remarriages and polygamy and all the things that are in your background for you to be exactly as you are today? Wouldn't he have had to have your parents get together on a particular night and a particular sperm invade a particular egg on that particular night for you to be here? Is he that involved in it? He counts a hair on our head, but I'm not sure that he knew everyone who would sin and every child who would be born out of wedlock on every particular night and everything that was required for you to be here today. But he has certainly called us to be a part of his elect according to his foreknowledge of God the Father. At some point, he looked down and decided, there is a person born there that I'm going to work with and began to work with that person because he was looking for certain types of people. Now, I can look across the church, and I see all kinds of different people. Maybe we all had one thing in common. We were weak in base. <laughs> you know. He wasn't looking for great and wonderful characteristics in each one, in every one of us. He wasn't looking for people who were born gifted or talented necessarily, was he? I mean, you look at a cross-section of the church, and it's obvious he wasn't looking for that. If he was, he didn't find it. And we're just sort of, what was left so he could use us? No, he took people who are not big, important, necessarily intelligent, or gifted, or talented, who were weak in base, that he might transform us into something different. Because it is to his greater glory to take something that doesn't amount to much and turn it into God than to take something which was already talented and gifted to begin with and turn it into God. It takes more miracles to get you and me there than it would have had we been wonderful, great people. So he chose us. A few he may have chosen from the womb, a few he may have chosen as we grew up, a few he may have chosen a little later in life, but at some point, if he's called us today, he began to work with us. It didn't just sort of happen that this one, that one, the other one responded on their own. The calling is from God. He began to work with each and every one of us whenever he began to work with us. Some we know from the womb, perhaps others later in life. But it was with his foreknowledge, his understanding, 
and his selection process that we were called. It isn't something we did, it's something he did. He is sovereign. If you're here and you're called of God, God knew it ahead of time and made sure you are here. Now that isn't to make us feel important in a wrong way, but it should give us strengthening and undergirdment and hope and faith in another way. That you're not here by accident, in other words. If you're here, God had a purpose for you, and he plans on working out that purpose in you. And he will not leave nor forsake you regardless. The only danger you and I are in is if, it, is if that we leave or forsake him. That's the only danger. And some will. Some are. So we're not here without God's pre-knowledge or foreknowledge of us. Now that's one reason. I know some of you get a little frustrated with me at times saying, well, why didn't Daryl do something about that? Why didn't he make so-and-so straighten up? Well, number one, I can't make so-and-so straighten up in the first place. But I feel that I have to be very patient and very long-suffering, and I have to give every pe people every opportunity, because if they are in the church, I mean here, there, or somewhere else, there is likely a reason they're there with the foreknowledge of God. And I do not want to be in the position of frustrating what God might be trying to do with that person by cutting them off too quickly. And I find that in time, people cut themselves off anyway. Now, we might have to put up with them for a while until they do it. But is that so bad? If we are impatient and we want to see someone worked over, then maybe we're not getting the message. Maybe we do not have the patience and the long-suffering that we ought to have. Why is it we're so glad God is merciful and patient with us, but we won't be with somebody else? And in the long run, he says, if you're not merciful to others, I will not be merciful to you. So I operate from the standpoint that whoever might show up might have been sent by God. Now they might be tares sent by Satan too. But let's be sure we give them a fair shot at it and a chance to grow and see what happens. Now if they're wheat, they'll eventually develop grain or fruit. If they're tares... No grain will appear. But even Christ says, I'm going to wait and let them grow together. And at some point, I'm going to examine it and see where the wheat is and where it's just grass. So I think we must be very careful. You know, somebody might grow up and be about an inch, two inches high, and we say, well, they don't show any wheat or they don't show any fruit. If they're a tree, maybe they grow that high and there's still no fruit or whatever. 
He used it both examples. Maybe they need more time. I'm sure glad God didn't judge me 25, 30 years ago. I'm glad he didn't give up on me 10 or 15 years ago. I'm glad he didn't give up on me five years ago. I hope he hasn't given up on me today. I still have a long way to go. Who are you ready to give up on? We need to think about that. We're not here without the foreknowledge of God. And if there's a chance God plays somebody instead of Satan, and I'm not saying Satan won't, that's what tares are all about. But God is our judge, and we need to be very, very careful about being condemnative and judgmental in a wrong way. It's easy to put people down, but we need to be very, very careful. Maybe they didn't have as much as some to start with. To whom much is given, much is required. You think maybe you were given a little more gifts or a little more talent, a little more ability. Well, maybe they're doing more with what they have than you are. Percentage-wise, you don't know that. I don't know that. So if we're here, or people are in God's church, I don't mean just here, but if they're called into the greater church of God somewhere, maybe God has a reason for them being there. And we need to be very careful. That doesn't mean we need to condone sin. Uh, if people are doing the wrong thing, they need to be brought up short on it. In some cases they need to be chastised. In some cases maybe they even need to be disfellowshipped for a time. But only so that they'll realize what they're missing and change and grow up and be brought back like the sinner in 1 Corinthians 5. Some pretty egregious sin there. And yet Paul said, put them out, don't brag about sin in the congregation. And then when the person really did repent, by then they were all down on him. I don't know what them, but you know what he did? You know, see, they were condoning it before, and now they get all self-righteous and say, well, look what he did. And then they wouldn't let him back after he'd ceased doing what was wrong. Then Paul had to write a blistering letter and say, look, the guy repented, you had better accept him back. I'm sure thankful God has been merciful to me, and I want to be merciful to others. Sometimes maybe I'm not as much as I ought to be, but I'm working on it. And yet on the other hand, we can't be reed shaken in the wind either. God set the standard in this book the Bible. We have to live up to that standard, but we need hope. So the first little ray of hope, as he calls us, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, set aside by the Spirit of God. Now, there are today over six billion people, I guess, on earth. I haven't counted them myself, but that's what I hear. I know there's a lot of them. I've seen a lot of them. Wherever you go on this earth, there's big cities and lots of people. But God has set aside certain ones. That's all sanctified means, is set apart. Set aside for a specific use. So, according to his foreknowledge, he set aside, or sanctified, through his spirit, certain people. 
So if we have been called today and we understand God's truth, we're sanctified. We're set apart for a specific job, a specific duty, a specific future in the world tomorrow as kings and priests to rule the earth. Now someday if the news media comes to us and they find that statement on our website, they'll think these people are kooky. Those people aren't going to rule the world. Well, if we follow through with what God told us to do, he said when Jesus Christ comes, we'll rule the world. Now that might be interpreted as being subversive today toward any human governments, but that's not where I'm coming from. We're not trying to overthrow any government. The only, thing, the only government I'm trying to overthrow is the carnal government of my mind over me and have it replaced with the Spirit of God and walk by the Spirit. So we're set aside. What for? Now when you set something aside, you set it aside for a specific purpose or use, right? Well, when God sets us aside, here's what it's for. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're supposed to change the way we are become like Christ, and then his blood will cover, sprinkle over, pass over any sins that we have committed so that we don't have to die for them. But what he's giving us is life through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's one reason I wanted to go on into Peter now just before the Passover comes, because Peter focuses on Jesus Christ an awful lot. And he focuses on events surrounding the Passover a great deal. Now, A, he probably was very impressed by those events, and they're what helped give him the strength and the courage to go on and to preach Christ to the world. But I've even wondered at times if he did not write this book perhaps just before Passover, or at Passover season, because it deals so much with it. At any rate, it's good for us to consider just before the Passover that we are called and set aside for obedience. We're here to obey every word of God, to live by every word of God, as is said three times, to obey all his words and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So what he's telling us here is you have been preordained to be set aside to live by every word of God and when you fail at it, to be covered by the Passover of Jesus. We're covered. Isn't, isn't that exciting, if you think about it? You can cast back in your mind, if you can stand it, and a lot of things you've done in the past, a lot of things you've done, the things you've thought, attitudes you've had, that were really wrong toward God, toward man, toward society, toward anyone, or even toward yourself. Depression is nothing but selfishness. It's self-pity taken to an extreme. But whatever attitudes we may have had toward others or toward ourselves can be washed away. We can be renewed, cleansed. We don't have to worry about yesterday. Now we do, don't we, sometimes? worry about yesterday. 
But we shouldn't, because we have the blood of Christ to cover our sins. So that we can have a new day every day at sunrise, as the book of Lamentation tells us. God gives us a new chance, a new start, if we're willing to go his way. In other words, Christ's sacrifice is a continuing thing. I think maybe some of us, when we were baptized, saw we'd probably never sin again. We thought, boy, I'm repenting, and now I'm going to have God's Holy Spirit, and I'll never sin again. Well, that's a nice thought to have, and it's a nice goal to have, but how long did that euphoria last? Not very long. I don't remember how long it was before I sinned after I was baptized, but I doubt if it was very long. I was 18. It couldn't have been very long till I sinned. If it had only been yesterday, I would have still sinned by now. But this is what we're called to do. So he says, you're set aside by the very knowledge of God to obedience and to come under the forgiveness and the mercy of God through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now that would be his wish. As Paul said at one time, I wish above all things you, be, you prosper and be in health. And Peter was giving a an opening salutation here that he wanted them to live in the, the good graces of God and to be blessed and to do well and to have peace. Well, that's well and good, but we're still human, and Peter had to address some problems because we do not always keep every word of God, and even with God's best intentions and our best intentions for ourselves, we still foul up, don't we? But there's hope through Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We'll be celebrating the Passover soon, and the beauty of the Passover is that it can forgive our past sins, but give us hope in the resurrection. Now, if Christ had died for our sins and stayed dead, where would we be? But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he was resurrected. So we can be resurrected from our way of life and thinking, and we can be resurrected from physical death as well, through his resurrection. There is great, lively hope. What is the hope of the dead, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The hope of the dead is the resurrection. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Didn't Christ say, in my house are many mansions or positions or offices or opportunities? In his address to the disciples right after uh, the Passover. I think it's John 14, first of the chapter, he goes into that. Well, Peter is reiterating it to us here. An inheritance, un incorruptible, can't be corrupted. Everything we do on this earth somehow gets corrupted, doesn't it? 
Sooner or later, it gets corrupted. I was reading something about wealthy people the other day, and, and I thought, how futile to spend your whole life looking for physical riches and big bank accounts and to become important on this earth. And people go through incredible agony, driving themselves to become rich, wealthy, and famous. And then they die. And it's all over. Done. A few names might be remembered for a generation or two. But there are very, very, what they would have thought were important people in the history of just the United States, as young as we are. A few of those names are brought forward, some of the politicians, some of the wealthiest people in the history books today. But there are a lot of people who really thought they were important, who were millionaires, billionaires maybe, that our school kids, if you brought up those names, would have no clue who you're talking about. In just a few generations, it's gone. Nothing left. And most of us, when we die, aren't remembered that long. We're not in the history books. There are a lot of millionaires dying in America day by day by day. They don't even make the news, most of them, unless it's in the town that they live in. But if a millionaire, just a run-of-the-mill millionaire, dies in Florida or Missouri, you and I don't hear about it. Now, they thought they were important. Their family might have thought they were important. They weren't important. We're here to build treasure in heaven so that we can have an inheritance incorruptible. We'll be remembered forevermore, never forgotten. Well, we'll always be there. How can you forget that which is in your face every day? Except that we won't be in anybody's face then. We'll just be, and we'll be a part of a loving family. Fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Your name is even written in the book of life. If you're, if you're baptized and you have God's Holy Spirit, your name is written by God or by an angel that is assigned, I don't know exactly how he does it, in a book of life. And once it's written in that book of life, God... If he has to have it erased out, it's because we removed it. He put it there in good faith 
that we would someday fulfill it. And if we don't, it's not because of what he did, it's because of what we did. In other words, God's attitude toward you and me is very, very positive. Remember when you had a little black book? Maybe back when you were dating and you'd write a name in that little black book? You wouldn't have written it in there if you didn't think you might have use for that name. You didn't write it in there to take out. And God doesn't write our name in his book with the idea of taking it out. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When is the last time? Wasn't when Peter wrote this, was it? He thought it was at that point in his life, maybe. But it's ready to be revealed in the last time, and now we understand that we are in the last time. So if this was an important letter to those people scattered at that time, how much more important is it for us today, who are at the last time? Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many temptations. Now we rejoice in what is ahead, but if need be, we have many temptations, problems, and difficulties. Why does this need be? You know, when God told ancient Israel that they were to teach their children what that Passover meant when they got to the Holy Land, in his mind, they should have started teaching that when they entered in the land the next year. Right? It's easy to walk from Egypt to Palestine in under a year. They should not have had, by any means, to have waited 40 years. But if need be, through many temptations, it took 40 years, then they were going to wait 40 years to enter the land. Had they done what God said, they would have gone immediately from Egypt straight to the promised land. But they, that wasn't to be they began to gripe and complain almost immediately. So Peter says, you have this great hope before you, and this could happen, and this, it'd be nice if you didn't have any problems, and you could have peace and grace multiplied to you, but we've got human nature we're still dealing with. We've got ourselves that are impeding the process. Israel impeded themselves and it cost all those who came out that were of age their lives. Physically. They'll be in the second resurrection, I feel sure, and have an opportunity at salvation because they never really had that. They had an opportunity to go to a physical promised land. And because of their attitudes, they didn't get to go. Now, does that translate forward? God is saying that at some point, he's going to take his people to a safe place where they can be a light to the world here at the end. But he said, pray that you be accounted worthy to go. 
not assume that you are worthy, as many do today, but pray that you be accounted worthy. I think the minute you say, oh, we're going, might be the day you cut yourself off from being accounted worthy. It says there'll be two grinding at the mill, two or three mill, two or three in the field, and he'll take one or the other. Or is that wait a minute? I get that backwards sometimes. He's talking about the resurrection place safety. But the point is, he says, pray that you be accounted worthy. So if sometime we're in heaviness and our actions, our Laodiceanism here at the end of the age, has caused us to be in manifold heaviness. Did I talk about, I know I talked about the thing in Wisconsin. Uh, I guess I haven't mentioned publicly what happened as a result of one of the members or of one of the ministers in that organization writing a very, I think, heartfelt letter to the living brethren and any others, meaning the rest of the Church of God, who might be concerned. And in it, he called for humility and meekness and repentance and fasting that we might all draw close to God so that that kind of thing would not happen again, not just to that organization, but to all of us. And I took that as a very real letter, well-intended, and I felt that it was basically the same message that you and I believe and are finding in the Scriptures. I thought it was very well done. There were few things in there I wouldn't have completely agreed with, but overall, the attitude and the, the way that it was written, I thought, was a very fine letter. But he has been disfellowshipped and fired because of that letter. Now, I sent it out to a few email addresses, and I suppose it's probably circulated, and now by, most of you have read it by now. Very fine letter. But apparently those in the... Now, I don't have all... I don't have all the facts, and I don't know. There may have been some things that went before that that had something to do with it. But the story is, I heard it, was that that letter precipitated firing of this fellowship. If, if that is indeed the case, I think that there has been a great injustice done. <laughs> because those, if anyone had fired this fellowship someone for writing that letter... It's because they did not want to be told in any form, fashion, or way that they were wrong in any way or needed to be humble or meek in any way, but that they were just fine, thank you. And that is a dangerous attitude to have. When you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. As I said at the beginning, if, if we take things for granted, brethren, what that should tell us is that somehow we think we're almost good enough. That we're already good enough that God just would want us 
to be there. We have lost the contrast between us and God. Job was essentially living a righteous life, but he had lost the ability to grasp how much greater God was than he. And if we think that we are spiritually mature enough and doing well enough that we have an automatic pass almost, we've lost just as much as Job lost. And look what God had to let Satan or cause Satan to do to Job to get him to see how far he was from being like God. And that's really what God is doing to you and me today. Marla pointed out the other day to me, I've been reading Job quite a bit, she says, when I put the church in there, it fits. We lost sight. We thought we were pretty nearly good enough for God's kingdom. We must have thought, we wouldn't have said it, but we must have thought somehow that we were pretty well qualified. If so... We didn't read Isaiah 64 where it says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. That we are so far from being what we ought to be and God is having to chasten us. So we greatly rejoice in what there is there, but we need to be, I guess, because of our nature, in heaviness through many temptations so that we might sort it out and get where we need to be. But if we start taking things for granted, it simply means that we've lost sight of how feeble and ineffective and how easy it is for us to walk in the flesh that we are. That was a really bad sentence that was in print, but maybe you got the point. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He, he com, com, compares the trial of our faith with refining gold. Refining gold requires a great deal of heat. And for us to be what we need to be, we have to go through the heat. 1 Corinthians 3 might have come to your mind immediately, did to mine. Turn back there for a moment. 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. We're like animals in his flock, or we're like a, a temple or a building he might build. According to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. So Peter, Paul, and Apollos might have digged and dunged and watered and so on, but he says it comes down to a personal responsibility. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work will be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, 
and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, if you are building with gold, silver, and precious stones, it can take the heat. But what if you're building with wood, hay, and stubble, and somebody strikes a match? Poof! It's gone. We've got to build with the right materials. The fire will try every man's work of what sort it is. It will either be refined in fire and made purer, or it will just burn up once the fire starts. Now that is the process that we see going on right now in the church. God has put the fire to us. He's allowed Satan to be turned loose on us to some degree. He holds him back, but he's turned him loose to some degree. Now, he held Job back some, or held Satan back from Job some. He said, do anything you want except take his life. So he sent people to destroy his flocks, people to destroy his servants. Satan sent a wind to blow down the house where his children were and killed all of them. He is the prince of the power of the air. He shows that he does have capacity to use natural forces to do what he wishes to do. And God gave him that power and that capacity. He could cause boils to go all over his body so that he couldn't sit, lay down, or be comfortable in any way. Satan can do these things if God allows him. He would have killed him had God allowed it, but God said, stop just short of that. Don't do that. Now, he has given limited power to Satan right now to affect us. He's going to give him greater power when he's cast down in Revelation 12. He's going to come to destroy every last one of God's faithful remnant. And those who have got into the tribulation, most of them, he will torture terribly and cause to be killed. God will allow him to kill them. So we are seeing pressure and a certain amount of fire in the church today. And some are just going up in a puff of smoke, hay and stubble. Some are burning up a little slower, wood. Some are being refined. How are you building? How am I building? Are we on our knees? Is our head in this book? Are we building with things that can stand the heat? If any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If we build properly and we're able to go through the fire, <coughs> will receive a reward. There's a promise. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, we have to be holy if we're the temple of God. That's why we must make a difference between the clean and the unclean, as Haggai puts it. Let no man deceive himself. It's easy to deceive yourself that you're okay. But then when you're put under pressure, what happens? 
Don't, don't deceive yourself as to what you're building with. You can do that. And we all deceived ourselves. And God has put the pressure on and some wooden hay and stubble's already going up in the fire. And it's going to get more severe. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So all the things that society might offer and all the things that you might study out there that are part of this world are foolishness to God. The things that are eternal are what we need to be learning. That's what's really important. All right, back to Peter. Well, no, let's don't either. Let's go to Malachi for a moment. Malachi 3. That ties in well with this too. Malachi 3. Now, where is this that I wanted? No, I wanted two. I'm sorry. It says in chapter... No, it's three. I'm still sorry. <laughs> I'm just sorry. <clears throat> chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Remember all the scriptures we've just read in Isaiah about how, how he'll turn it around in one day, and our cloud of sin will be removed in one day says he's going to come suddenly to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. David recognized that. And when he had sinned greatly, in Psalm 51, he prayed that God would purge him with hyssop and wash him and make him white and clean. Because he knew that Christ is a refiner and a purifier, and he knew that he needed cleansed. We know we need it too. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old as in, and as in former years. So there's a period of time in there in which what we present to God is not what he wants. So he is going to purify and cleanse. And he's starting that process in us and is going to continue it through all Israel and through the whole world. But it's a process that starts with us. And if we build, when he appears, we'll be able to stand before him and there will be a part of the purification process with the rest of the world. That's what this is all about. He didn't call you and me because we were so good and so important. He called us because we weren't and if we can build a proper temple out of gold and silver, he will preserve us. And if he has been able to turn us into kings and priests in his kingdom, then he can use us to turn others. It's a goal and a purpose that God has given us to live on this earth. He's only calling a few to prepare them to train the rest. And if you're here being trained, then he has foreknowledge of you, and he has sanctified and set you apart to be important someday in saving the world. But in the meantime, we go through. See, 
when we have made it through, brethren, when we've gone through all the trouble and trials that we're about to go through and already to some degree are in, but there's more coming, when we've gone through all that, we will have learned the lessons we need to have learned of mercy and patience and forgiveness, service and love, so that we can pass them along to others. Do you see why it is necessary that we go through this? It isn't pleasant, but it's necessary. Now you sometimes look at an individual and you say, man, that person has problems. Why don't they change this, 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 and this? Why don't they be more like me? No, no, you wouldn't say that. Why are they like they are? And you think, what is it going to take to turn them around? We've used the expression often, that person's going to have to learn the hard way. Isn't that a fairly common expression? That person's going to have to learn the hard way. Aren't we all pretty much that way? I've learned some lessons the hard way. I probably still have some to learn the hard way. I'm hard-headed, so it takes pretty hard knock sometimes. But after you've learned the hard way, then you'll be prepared to help others learn. Now, aren't most people going to go into the tribulation and learn the hard way? You and I have an opportunity to soften our hearts and our heads to God and miss the tribulation. I don't want to see the little children I see out here in this audience today and the teenagers go through the tribulation. If I read the scriptures properly and understand from history what mankind has done to man from Cain and Abel on, I don't want your children to go through that or my children or grandchildren. If we'll learn now to be patient and loving and kind and merciful, maybe God will grant us opportunity to miss that and our children. But if we remain full of pride and vanity and ego and self, we're going to have to learn the hard way and so will our kids. And they'll probably die instead of be delivered out of it. That isn't a pleasant prospect, but it's the truth. We have opportunity right now to repent, to change, not to take things for granted, not to continue slumbering and sleeping, but to realize the vast difference, the vast gulf between us and God. Like Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man could see no way to get across that great gulf between him and God. Now, I see a way now, ahead of time, that we can close that gap or heal that breach, close that great divide between us and God by living according to his words and walking in the Spirit and getting rid of human vanity, pride, and ego and becoming humble. That's why when someone says, I'm one of the two witnesses, or I'm the end-time apostle, or I'm the only successor that's legitimate to Herbert Armstrong. 
I know that can't be anyone God is using. It can't be. Because they are full of vanity and pride and ego. And God's witnesses at the end are going to come in what? Sackcloth and ashes. That depicts humility, meekness. So whoever God uses for whatever jobs from now on, meekness and humility have got to be watchwords of their lives. Great swelling vanity and pride and ego aren't going to get it. God resists the proud. Is there any pride or vanity? Spiritual ego when somebody says, I am the only legitimate church leader on earth today? Is that someone I would want to follow? I got enough of that website in about 30 minutes to an hour. Don't need to hear the rest of it. I've heard enough, seen enough. God is looking for humility and meekness in us. He says, if you're meek and humble and righteous, maybe you will be protected there in Zephaniah 2. We must be humbling ourselves, not building up our egos. That's what most are doing. And, you know, God will not put up with that. That is spiritual wood, hay, and stubble is what that is. And that will burn up real fast. Let's go on. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What does that imply to us? What we're here to be doing is building a temple, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 3, out of precious metals or stone, gems, silver, and gold. If we build with those things, they'll survive and they'll be worthwhile to God. He'll say, man, that, that's valuable. But if you claim you're that, when the fire comes, it burns up. So it doesn't do any good for us to deceive ourselves and think we're building something that we're not. In other words, we have to be honest with ourselves. Does it make you pure gold to criticize others, to criticize their abilities, to criticize whatever level of growth they might be at, to make yourself feel that you're above them spiritually? Now you might be giving yourselves placebos to make yourself feel good. But God's going to put it to the fire. And we're going to find out if all this that you've built up in your mind that makes you above anyone else will survive or not. Deceiving yourself, kidding yourself that you're building with silver and gold when you're building on the things of this world and your own ego isn't going to do you a bit of good. 
That self-deception is going to lead to self-destruction. We must be honest with ourselves. What did Job do? He finally got honest about it. God showed him through the things the devil did to him and through his friends and ultimately speaking to him himself. Where were you when I did this, 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 and this? Where were you when I did that? Oh, I was nothing. I wasn't even here when you created the worlds and the heavens and the whales and the leviathans and the dinosaurs and all the things you created. I wasn't here. Job's perspective changed an awful lot. He had thought he was a pretty righteous man. And when, God, when Satan and God got done with him, he said, man, what did, he, what did he do? It humbled him. That's what it did. It humbled him. He felt small before God. We need to feel small before God. Which does God look to? The one who stands and says, I fast twice in a week and I give gums and I'm the righteous man and the only apparent successor to Herbert Armstrong. Is there any difference in tone there? Ours is the only work. We are the ones. Is there any difference between that and the Pharisee who beat his chest and said, I'm wonderful? What about the man who wouldn't even look up and said, have mercy on me, a sinner? a real contrast there because the man realized he was a long way from being like God. But Christ used the example of the, the Pharisee and the sinner in the same way that we have the whole book of Job to show us that no matter how righteous we might think we are, we're still a long way from being like God. And if we're going to be like God and he's going to be pleased when Christ returns and we'll be able to stand at his appearing then we need to be building with gold and silver and precious stones. Do we like rings and things that we hang on our bodies made out of wood, hay, or stubble? Oh, honey, would you please get me a straw ring? I don't think so. You gals would rather have diamonds and gems and silver and gold. They're pleasing. They have an intrinsic beauty. The wood, hay, and stubble simply don't have. So God uses those as an example of what he wants. Christ looks at his bride and says, Honey, I would like to see gold, silver, and precious stones when I come. I want you be decked with those. And he gives us here... Gold, silver, diamonds, and precious stones. That's what these words are equivalent to. And he says, I want you adorned with these words. Live by every one of these words so that when I come back and I look at you, you are precious stones, silver, and gold. And you can stand before me when I appear because you're made with quality material." That's what he's looking for in his bride. I don't want to spend this whole time, and I'm almost done today, telling us what we ain't. I want to tell us what we can be, what we should be, 
What putting our head in here and building with precious stones and silver and gold can do. See, I don't want to have to tell you like we did years ago on Worldwide, you must study your Bible every day. You must get on your knees and pray every day. You've got to go through these hoops every day because I won't mimic who I've heard say some of those things. Quite a few said it. And I probably said it. But what we need to do is realize how precious these words are. And if we didn't take them for granted and realize how precious they were, we could hardly wait to get our nose in here, right? So if we're lacking and we have trouble wanting to get our head in our Bible, we don't realize how valuable it is. We haven't realized that every word is gold. Every word is silver. Every word is precious stones. And we search for them the way men search for gold with fever. Gold fever. If we realized, if we grasped the hope that is in this book, we would want to hear about it. We'd want to read it. We'd want to build with it. If you had an opportunity to build with wood, hay, or stubble, or gold and precious stones? Isn't that a no-brainer? When we see a billionaire's yacht lined with seagrass, isn't it impressive? No, that's not the one that gets written up. I've seen big pictorials of Aristotle Onassis' yacht years ago inlaid with gold, the fixtures were gold, the potty was gold. Everything was gold and diamonds. That's the one they wrote up because that's what impresses people. Well, the real gold is here. The gold that is forever is here. These are the diamonds that are forever. The gems of God's worth. And if we can be inspired to understand that we could have life eternal and peace and prosperity, and everything any human being ever dreamed about and beyond. Wouldn't we have our head in it? See, we don't just take Sabbath service for granted. We take God and God's words for granted. And we're doing ourselves a great injustice. Because he wants us clothed in these words. Clothed in righteousness when he returns. That's what preparing his bride is all about. What he wants to say when he sees his bride is, Wow, honey, you look good. That's what he wants to say about his bride. You and me. The option is ours.